set apart. Lord, you don't make mistakes. You're high and above. And God, we're just excited to be here today to meet with you, to hear from you. Lord, we need your grace. We need your presence. God, so we humble ourselves before your word today. We ask that you would meet us here. Lord, satisfy our souls because only you can. You are the God who is both merciful and mighty. God, you're powerful enough to accomplish what we need. You're powerful enough to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And you are merciful enough to love sinners like us. You're merciful enough to get involved in the mess of our lives. And so, God, we just worship you today. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness towards us and pray that through your word, you would meet us with your goodness. Through your word, you would draw us to a deeper level of worship in you. God, we trust completely your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, we trust your Holy Spirit to work through your word. We need you. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a, a little while since I spent much time doing any hiking. Um, it used to be a season in my life when I actually did, did some hiking pretty regularly, went on a few uh, three or four day trips uh, on the Appalachian Trail and that sort of thing. And uh, something I learned about, about hiking is if you want to, uh, you can carry a really, really, really heavy pack that just has like lots and lots and lots of bottles of water in it. But if you don't want to do that, uh, there's another way to, to drink clean water. Uh, you can find uh, water out uh, on, your, on your hike. But here's the key. Not all water is drinkable. Uh, and the last thing you want on a hiking trip is to have an upset tummy. So what do you do? Well, I'm sure there's all sorts of new high-tech ways to purify your water and that sort of thing. But the way I learned to purify my water when I was out hiking was to actually drop a few drops of bleach into the water. I said a few drops, a few drops of bleach into the water, uh, and it would purify the water. Now, the thing I hated about dropping the bleach into the water is that it tasted bad. You could kind of taste it, and it would, it would make it a bad taste. But knowing that the water was clean, knowing uh, that it was going into my body and it was nourishing me and hydrating me, it was good for me, made it worth the bad taste. Where we find Israel, we've been studying through the book of Ezra, and where we find Israel uh, in the book of Ezra is that they've just been released from a very bitter season of life. Uh, 70 years earlier, so where we're going to be this morning, imagine 70 years earlier, God had sent Israel into exile, and this was bleach in their worship. If their worship had been water, it would have been undrinkable. And so God sent them into exile to purge them of their impurities and to draw them to, towards a more purified and singular devotion upon him. And so for 70 years, they were in captivity. But where we are in Ezra is that God had reached down his sovereign hand and he had pulled them out of this exile. He brought them out of captivity. And it appears that the bleach that he had dropped in their water had worked. They arrived back home with a focus, a devotion. They were ready to worship God. They were ready to put God first in their lives. And so it appeared that exile had, had worked. But God has placed Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 to 7 in our Bibles to serve as a kind of bleach for our worship. See, our hearts grow cold to the Lord. Our minds drift from His glory and, and fame. Our, our hands get busy doing all sorts of other things. Um, even our, our, our souls just grow numb to His conviction, to His leading, to His guiding and so what we need is to be restored again. So this is what we're going to do today. Uh, I'm going to invite you to envision your life like a bacteria-filled jar of water. And we are going to drop 
uh, seven drops of bleach down into the atmosphere of our hearts because there is nothing more important in our lives or in this world than for the worship of Almighty God to be restored through Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important in your life today or in our world today than that. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible to Ezra chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the, the, the scripture should be on the screen. You can read along. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 7 this morning, Ezra 3, 1 to 7. And we're going to prayerfully open our lives to the Lord and ask him to restore our hearts today. This is Ezra 3, 1 to 7. It says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord Was not yet laid. So they gave money to the Masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord to us today. So we're going to be dropping seven drops of bleach down into the atmosphere of our hearts. The first drop of bleach this morning is the preparation of restored worship, the preparation of restored worship. Uh, Let's look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but if I had just moved towns, if I had just picked up my life, made a long, arduous journey uh, to to go move somewhere else, I don't think that uh, one of the first things that I would want to do would be to, to travel again and go gather with 50,000 other people and live in a tent for a few weeks out in a completely demolished city. Uh, I don't think that that's what I would have wanted to do. I think I would have wanted to get my house settled. Uh, I would have wanted to maybe get my business up and running, uh, maybe make sure my kids got into the right schools, you know, just, just nest a little bit, you know, make sure my, you know, all my, my pictures were up on the wall and everything, and just sort of get, get into the groove of life. Uh, That's what I would have wanted to do first, but that's not what these people did. They gathered with a resolute focus and all journeyed to Jerusalem, this demolished city. And we have to ask why. Why did they do this? Why, after making this big, long move, why are they joining together to come to Jerusalem? Well, the answer is that exile had had its impact on them. After 70 years of exile... God's people knew that they needed him more than they needed good businesses. They needed him more than they needed for their neighborhoods to be settled. They needed him more than anything else. And going through the exile experience, their hearts had been changed. They had been brought to a pure devotion. Uh, a few years ago, I got in a bad accident right on the other side of the swing bridge here. Um, I was driving down the road, and someone hit me from behind. And it was the kind of accident that actually honestly could have been a lot worse. Um, I was knocked across oncoming traffic, and, and thankfully, uh, there was not a car you know, coming at that time, or I would have been hit, hit twice. Uh, but for me, uh, the, every time I cross that swing bridge, I cross it with like a different mentality that after having gone through that experience, I'm a lot more alert. I'm a lot more focused I'm a lot more aware of my surroundings when I cross the swing bridge now because what I went through has changed me. It's changed my perception. It's changed how I view life. 
Well, these Israelites, after 70 years of exile, they came back with new hearts. They came back changed. They came back with a new focus to worship God. And in my opinion, this is always one of the first things that God does when he restores our worship. There's some crisis, some experience. Maybe it's a, all of a sudden we start to feel guilty about the things that we've done in our lives, and, and it's, it feels like God wakes us up. He gets our attention. Uh, he, he comes in and he draws us out toward, towards uh, seeking him and needing him and pursuing him. That when God restores our worship, he uses a pivotal, pivotal moment to awake our hearts to the fact that we need him more than we need good businesses. We need him more than we need good education. We need him more than anything. And that desperation is how we know we're on the road to restored worship. The Israelites were hungry for God because they had gotten a taste of what life without him was like. But as we'll see, their devotion played out in a number of ways here. And so our second drop of bleach is the priority of restored worship. The priority of restored worship. Verse 2 says, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses the man of God. Now, we have to have the picture of Jerusalem in our minds, right? This was a demolished city. The temple had been totally destroyed. The walls around the city had been totally torn down. The next book of the Bible, Nehemiah, talks about uh, the journey to rebuild the wall to the city. And I don't know about you, but in my mind, it, it kind of feels like that might be the place to start, right? You're arriving back in Jerusalem. You're trying to put things back together. Maybe start with the wall, right? Get some protection. Get some safety. And then build the temple. And then, then maybe, maybe after that, start to build the stuff that goes in the temple. But that's not what they did. It, it kind of seems like they're doing things out of order. Uh, I want you to imagine for a second that uh, you were building a house, right? You're building a house. You've bought this piece of property you got all the permits. Everything's ready to go. Uh, it's the day that it's time to break ground. It's the day that you're supposed to start construction. And so you gather your crew. You gather your construction crew all together. And uh, then you say, all right, guys, we've got one thing we need to do before we actually start breaking ground today. Uh, and all of a sudden, a moving truck pulls up uh, to, to the lot. And you open the door to the moving truck, and there is a couch and a refrigerator and a bed and a dresser, all the things that go in your house. And say, all right, guys, first thing we need to do, we need to unload all this stuff out on the ground so that we can uh, get, this, get this house moving. Now, those guys would look at you and think you were crazy. Why? Because before you need a couch, you need a floor. Before you need a refrigerator, you need power. Before you need a bed, you need a roof. But it kind of feels like here in Ezra 3 that they're going out of order, right? There's so many other things that could have been set as the priority. There's a, there's a wall to build. There's a temple to build. And yet, when these people do the very first thing, the very first thing they do is they build an altar to God. And this is what happens when God begins to restore our worship. The, one of the first signs we know that God is restoring our worship is that our priorities get realigned. The worship of God starts to take first place in our lives. The worship of God that maybe seemed foolish before to put God first. Ways in which following him seemed kind of ridiculous to us. Now start to feel more and more like it's the only option to put him first to give him our best, to, to lay the altar down even before there's a foundation, even before there's a house, even before there's a wall. That starts to feel like it's the only thing that matters because the glory of God rises in our hearts. So they gathered as one man to Jerusalem, and the first thing they did 
under this good, godly leadership was they built an altar. But there's a few things about this altar that I think we need to, to take an account of. So that, here's our third drop of bleach this morning. Our third drop of bleach is the place of restored worship, the place of restored worship. Verse 3 begins with this important detail. It says, they set the altar in its place. So it's important that they built the altar. It's important that they built it first. But it's also important that they put it in its place. Uh, We've already mentioned a few times through our study of Ezra that um, our small groups just finished studying the book of Daniel uh, at the end of last year. And it was a great book to study right before Ezra because Daniel was one of those exiles whom had been, who had been sent out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, into Babylon. And so Ezra, the book of Ezra comes right after what, the things that we're seeing in the book of Daniel. And one of the things that we learned about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 is that there were these, there were these men who kind of formed a, a plot against him. And they didn't want him to be praying to his God. They were trying to catch him. They didn't want him to be praying to his God. But this is what we learn in Daniel 6, verse 10. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, this is the point I want to make. Just one simple point I want to make about this. Why, when Daniel goes to his private worship three times a day, why is he opening his windows and facing towards Jerusalem? Well, it's because even in exile, even when he'd been cast out, he was still regularly orienting his life to the worship of God. Jerusalem was the place where God's presence was was supposed to dwell with man. So three times a day, Daniel was resetting his heart back to the place where God had ordained for worship to take place. If you could have drawn like a straight line from where Daniel was on his knees praying, just drawn a straight line out from where he was, it would have smacked right in to the place where the altar was. See, God wanted Jerusalem and the temple and the altar to be right at the center of their lives. When it says here that they put the altar in its place, they were literally putting it at the center of their lives. Like geographically speaking, it was right at the center of their lives, right at the center of what they believed to be the center of the earth. And God wanted it there. He wanted it there because he was teaching his people an important lesson. That while it is true that God comes first, It's also true that the worship of God is supposed to fill every single area of our lives. Like the way we approach God is we have the the relational slice of our life, we have the vocational slice of our life, we have the financial slice of our life, we have our uh, familial slice of our life, and then we have this little religious slice of our life. But what God is trying to teach us, what we learn from somebody like Daniel is, no, 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 worshiping God is not just one little slice of our life. The worship of God is the heartbeat, the throbbing center that infuses every area of our life with the worship of God. Now when we go to work, we're worshiping God. When we deal with our finances, we're worshiping God. When we interact with our families, we're worshiping God. Everything we're doing is about worshiping God. And when when God begins to restore our worship, we start to realize that every area in every aspect of our lives is an opportunity to see him glorified, to see him praised, we begin to see, start seeing life differently. Worship is no longer a slice, but it infuses every aspect of who we are. So they gathered as one man and built the altar, and they set it in its place, right in the center of their lives. <clears throat> now, this next drop of bleach that we're going to talk about is just absolutely critical. If we miss this, then uh, we've been wasting our time here today. So the fourth, the fourth drop of bleach is this, the pulse of restored worship. The pulse of restored worship. I'm going to read all of verse 3 now. 
It says they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Huh. Now at first, that seems kind of odd. What does prioritizing an altar have anything to do with the fear of the peoples, being afraid of people? What does prioritizing setting up this place of sacrifice and offering have anything to do with being afraid of people in your life? Seems odd. But the reason that they wanted to prioritize the altar was because they had learned the hard way that the most important thing in life is peace with God. See, when they had been exiled, it was God's judgment for their sin. And how had God executed his judgment? For their sin upon them. He had raised up surrounding peoples to conquer them. These folks who had come out of exile, they had learned the hard way that there is nothing that can protect us from the wrath of God. No fortified wall, no big beautiful temple, no well-insulated life, can protect someone from the wrath of God. The only thing that can protect a human from the wrath of God is the peace of God, which comes through the grace of God, which is only obtained through the substitutionary sacrifice of God. Uh, the word that we should have in mind when we think about these burnt offerings, when we think about the altar, when we think about the offerings, is transfer. Transfer. Um, recently, last week, somebody asked me to pitch in on buying a gift for somebody. And I was eager to do it, wanted to do it, but here's the problem. I don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't have cash. Now, I'm sure there's some uh, old souls in this room who still carry cash with you. Good for you. Uh, but for the most of us who are in this room... Transferring money has become like just an ordinary part of life. Just pretty regular to transfer money back and forth. What's happening when you transfer money? You're, you're sending it from yourself to someone else. And that is the image that we, that we should have when we think about these sacrifices. The whole book of Leviticus is about how God had in his mind, when he gave them the, the sacrifices, he had in his mind the idea of transfer. This is how uh, one guy, Michael Morales, describes this process. This is how he describes the transfer process. He says, The worshiper lays his hand on the animal's head, pressing down upon it heavily. The Hebrew verb for this gesture denotes more than merely laying one's hand upon the animal, but rather means to press down on or lean on with heavy pressure. The result of this gesture, therefore, is that the animal now stands as a vicarious substitute for the worshiper with the specific end of making atonement on its behalf, that is, of presenting the Israelite before God reconciled and accepted. The only way to have peace with God is for our sin to be transferred into a substitute and then for that substitute to die, to be slaughtered under the wrath of God because of our sin. Uh, in the introduction, <clears throat> the last thing I kind of wanted to leave with you was that what we need more than anything, what this world needs more than anything, is for the worship of God to be restored in us. But here's the key, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Him on the cross was the ultimate final picture of what all those Old Testament sacrifices have been pointing to. Jesus Christ on the cross is the substitute 
who our sin is transferred into, and then he dies in our place for our sin. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think to myself, why do they have all these Old Testament things? If, if Jesus was coming and he was the sacrifice and all of them, even them, were in, 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 in essentially saved by him, why did they have to do all this? Well, well, this is something that helped me this week. I've actually learned something deeper about what it means to put my faith in Jesus this week by thinking about these sacrifices. I mean, when you think about believing in Jesus, the image that we should have in our minds is ourselves pressing down upon him, leaning down upon him, casting our full weight upon Jesus so that our sin, all of it, past, present, and future, transferred into him and then him slaughtered in our place. That is what it means to believe in Jesus. So what does that have to do with worship? Why is Jesus Christ and Him crucified the pulse of restored worship? Uh, three words that I think will help us think through how worship relates to the sacrifice of Jesus. The three words are fear, faith, and favor. So first let's talk about fear. Uh, fear is a powerful motivator. The reason that these Israelites were impassioned and prioritized building this altar is because they knew that God, 70 years earlier, had just used the surrounding peoples to conquer them and send them into exile because they were under God's judgment. And so the most important thing that they needed to do before they built a wall, before they built a temple, before they got settled in their house, was to go and get right with God through blood sacrifice. And the fears in our life are intended to drive us towards God through Jesus. I've heard people say before, if the only reason you're going to, you know, you're coming to Jesus is because you're afraid of going to hell, then, you know, you're doing it wrong, or you're not doing it for a genuine reason. Well, guess what, guys? If you run to Jesus because you are afraid of going to hell, praise God. You have responded appropriately. Fears in our life drive us towards Jesus. And when we run to Jesus, what we're saying is that we actually fear God more than we fear whatever else it is that we fear. So that's fear. That's how fear teaches us something about the relationship between sacrifice and worship. Faith. If what God deserves from us is total and complete, pure devotion then all of us have to acknowledge that more effort is not going to get the job done. See, here's the, here's the, the trick. Here is what's so sneaky. This morning, uh, we've already been talking about putting God first, how he has to be the center of our lives, how he deserves to be totally and completely worshipped by us, that that's what all of life is about. And, and here's where so many of us have gone wrong. We've seen that high standard. We hear that, and we, we think, man, that's a, that's a high standard. And the next move we make is we think, I'll start trying harder now. And instead of turning to faith in Jesus, we turn to self-reform. I don't know if you've ever been uh, doing something and at some point, you just realize that more effort wasn't going to cut it. Uh, last Christmas, my parents bought my niece this little kitchen set. That thing came with 10,000 pieces. And it sort of just felt like the harder I tried, the worse things got. Right? At some point, pieces just weren't fitting together. And, it, and you get wrapped up in it, and you, you're trying, and just, you start sweating. I mean, when you're put, trying to... Love a child, and you're sweating. It's like the most, oh, it's so frustrating. The only way that that kitchen set got built was for me to finally acknowledge that more effort wasn't going to do it. I had to give the wrench away and walk out of the room, let someone else do for me what I obviously could not do. The danger of seeing the high standard and 
seeing what God deserves is somehow believing that we could get there, that we could achieve it. And so we tighten up our bootstraps and we offer our most sincere prayers and we say, I'm going to change this time. And instead of running to Jesus and putting our trust in Jesus, we've actually just taken things back into our own hands. We've actually just taken a step backwards. (laughs) It would actually be better if we were just like broken and we knew it than to think that somehow we were like holding it together. And what I love about these sacrifices, it says they were morning and evening. And if you, if you go and you study the sacrifice, that phrase morning and evening, all that means is that it was a 24-7 operation. There was a sacrifice on the altar all day, every day. Even in, even in Israel's life, God had instituted a Sabbath, right? You know what a Sabbath is? A Sabbath is a day of rest. Everybody took a break. Everybody took a rest. You know who didn't take a rest? The priests making sacrifices. Even on the day of rest, there were sacrifices that needed to be made. Why? Because there's not a moment of our lives that we don't need to be forgiven. Even our most sincerest attempts need covering. Even our worship needs cleansing. Jesus Christ is God's 24-7 grace for our 24-7 need. And, and I would bet that there's two kinds of people here today in this room. And, and, and I, this should land on you in two different ways. You might be the kind of person that you're like a, you're a take-it-and-do-it-yourself kind of person. What morning and evening, 24-7 offerings means for you is that you are actually probably far worse than you think you are. Your pride and self-will is the last thing that needs to break before you come to salvation in Jesus and before your worship can be restored. But if you're here today and you're someone who thinks, I could never do that. God must hate me. There's just nothing that I could ever do. I'm here today to tell you that there is 24-7 grace. Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Us leaning totally, completely, fully upon him. And him standing in our place. And then favor. This is when worship really comes alive. Worship comes alive when we realize that our worship is not given to God to achieve grace, but instead it is given to God as a response to grace. When we realize that putting Him first Setting him in his place at the center of our lives is a response out of love and thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us and not a recommendation to God that he would somehow accept us. When that is the fuel and the pulse of our worship, then we come alive. no drop of bleach could be more important than that. There's no moving forward. If we haven't settled to lean completely and fully upon Jesus, there's no moving forward. But it seems to me that these people are responding to God's grace. Uh, The fifth drop of bleach that we're going to look at today, uh, these things kind of move in order. The next thing is the promise of restored worship. I just want to draw out the beginning of verse 4. You know, they, it goes on to say in verse 5 that they instituted all the, uh, the feasts. They went on to basically reorient their whole lives around the worship of God. But for some reason, they particularly mentioned this feast of booths. Feast of booths. 
Well, the Feast of Booths was a celebration about how God had cared for his people when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. God had brought them out of Egypt. Honestly, it's, it, it's a, it's a image of this exile. They were in captivity. They came out through a blood sacrifice, but now they're in the wilderness. And what did God do? God was faithful to them. He provided water out of the rock. He brought bread down from heaven to feed them. And all along the way, God had been faithful. God had kept his promise. And the Feast of Booths was the people would literally go to Jerusalem, set up tents, and live in a tent for a week just to remember what God had done, just to reenact how God had been faithful to their ancestors. And so now, here, after 70 years, decades and decades, they're, they're living out, they're reenacting this Feast of Booths again. Um, every time I go to a wedding, I've, I've been to a lot of weddings, I've uh, officiated a, a few weddings, but for some reason, when I go to a wedding, it just sort of draws me back into my own marriage. Like as I watch people commit their lives and make those promises, there's something about it that stirs in me the promises that I've made to Allie and the promises that she has made to me. And that's what this Feast of Booths was supposed to be. It was supposed to be this reenactment, this remembrance. It wasn't even for the initial people. It was for these later generations who in reenacting the experience would be reminded that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises. And the reason that we have to see this when God begins to restore our worship is that all of a sudden, when we start putting him first, when he takes up residence at the center of our lives, we actually get pushed out to where we have to depend upon his faithfulness. We actually have to depend upon his promises. Jesus summed it up well in Matthew 6.33. This is restored worship. Like This is the picture to me of, of how the promise of restored worship. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What was he talking about? These things. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Jesus is saying, you put the kingdom of God first, and here's the promise. You have a heavenly Father who already knows everything you need before you even ask. The full faith that comes with restored worship is met with the promise of full provision from God. As he draws us out, as he draws us deeper, as he draws us into a life infused with the worship of him, we see that we're getting further and further from safety in our own hands, but further and further into the safe grip of God. Now, we've been using this word restored. Restored. And I, and I want to ask this question. Restored back to what? Which leads to our sixth drop of bleach. Our sixth drop of bleach, the pattern of restored worship. Let me read verses 4 and 5. It says, And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings, by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who had made a free will offering to the Lord. So do you see what these people are doing? Their lives are being restored to the worship of God. Even their calendar is being set up according to the worship of God. You know how we have like these holidays every two weeks, it feels like holiday, holiday. There's something to celebrate, something to do. Well, that was how their life was, except it was oriented around the worship of God. But why these specific things? Why? have to build the altar in this specific way? Why does the altar have to be set in this specific place? Why are they celebrating these particular feasts on these particular days? Well, I think it's summed up well in verse 4 in these, th these three phrases. As it is written, according to the rule, as each day required. Restored worship is always according to to the word of God. It is his worship in his way 
according to his commands. Uh, Have you ever been playing a game where someone starts making up the rules as they go? It's pretty annoying. If you're that person, we don't like you. Right, last Saturday, not this, not yesterday, but a week ago Saturday, we were out here for our neighbor project. Every second Saturday of the month, we have a neighbor project, and someone had brought a new game to the neighbor project called Flickin' Chicken. Now, none of us knew how to play this game. Uh, someone was in the middle of reading the rules, and all of a sudden, chickens just start flying, right? And so uh, we were throwing the chickens, and then someone would ask, well, what does this mean? Right? Or, so, so what do we do now? And we honestly got to the end, and we're like, how do you even win? Like, who, who wins? How do you know? Right? Playing a game where you're making up the rules as you go is no fun. And especially when you're just somebody that's like tweaking the rules as you go. Like, that is no fun at all. But guys, that's exactly what we do with our faith. When this rule suits us, we're, we're glad to take it in. But when something starts to feel like it doesn't quite fit with our life, our decisions. It's not for us. But when God begins to restore our worship, we know it. Because that typical selfish approach gets reversed. Instead of coming to the Bible and saying, you know, man, there might be some, something in here. There might be some... This, this, feels, this is some good emotional therapy, and maybe if I show a little blessing towards God, I show up at church occasionally, maybe he'll bless my life. We stop treating his word like that, and instead we say, Lord, whatever you say, conform my life to your word. I'm not worthy, Lord. I'm not worthy to walk under your righteousness. I'm not even worthy to walk these paths. So please, Lord, help me, conform me. Whatever the whole word says, applied to my total life, Lord. That's the posture of restored worship. So many of us miss the opportunity to experience restored worship because of what Tim Keller calls A secular gospel of self-acceptance masquerading as Christianity. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that so many of us fall in love with forgiveness, but don't fall in love with Jesus. Christianity is not Believing in forgiveness. Christianity is believing in Jesus, the Lord, who through his life and death and resurrection does forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, as we surrender our whole selves to him. We don't slice up Jesus and pick and choose the parts of him that we like. No, 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 no. We worship a whole Christ. He is our redemption. He is our reconciliation. He is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. And he is our example. When God restores our worship, we come to the place where we just love Jesus. And we receive both his reconciliation that he gives us to God. And we receive his rules that teach us how to wisely order our lives. We receive both the grace that goes all the way down 24-7. And we receive all of his truth because we've, believed, we've gone all in and we believe there's no other truth out there. Especially not the truth that I make up. Romans 6, 17 to 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once Slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become 
slaves of righteousness. Conforming to the word of God is not slavery. It is freedom. It is a benefit of coming to Jesus, not a burden of coming to Jesus. Now we're pretty much going to pick right up here next week. But there's one last thing that I, I want us to see today to kind of bridge the gap between verse 6, 7, and then into next week's passage. And so finally this morning, our final drop of bleach is the passion of restored worship, the passion of restored worship. Uh, I'll just read verse 6. It says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. See, it's in that word, but, that we kind of get a sense of, honestly, what all of Ezra is going to feel like. It's going to kind of feel like we're there, and then we realize we're not. It's going to kind of feel like we've gotten some, made some progress, and then we're going to realize we're not quite there yet. That, it, that the altar, it feels like this, it almost feels like the Bible could just end here. But there's something else, something driving. Why did they pick up their lives and come back? Why did they build the altar first? What was their driving passion? It was fellowship with God. It was communion with God. It was a relationship with God. In Exodus, at the end of Exodus, the very last paragraph of the book of Exodus, uh, God's people, they've built this tabernacle. The tabernacle was the pre-mobile version of the, the temple. This was the place that God had said he was going to have a fellowship with man. This is where God and man were going to meet, have a friendship, have a relationship. And the thing is done. They build the tabernacle exactly the way God had told them to. And the glory of God comes down and his presence fills the tabernacle. But then a really weird thing happens. It says in the text that Moses could not go in. This is the place where God and man were supposed to meet. This is the place where they were supposed to have relationship, fellowship, meet with one another. God is there, but man can't go in. Why? Well, because Leviticus hadn't happened yet. There was no blood sp spilled yet. There was no altar sacrifice yet. There was no transfer ceremony yet. And the only way to get in to God's presence was through the sacrifice. But here's the mistake we can make. The mistake we can make is that, yes, we believe that there's no other way into God's presence but through the cross. There's no other way to be forgiven but through the cross. There's no other way to have, a, have fellowship with God but through the cross. But here's the mistake we can make. The mistake we can make is to think that the cross is somehow the finish line. No, the cross is the starting line. The cross is what brings us in to relationship with God. That The cross was not an end in of itself. It served a purpose of getting God and man back together again. We know that Jesus is the only way, but where is he the only way to? Of course, we might say heaven, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. The passion of worship is communion with God, fellowship with God, relationship with God with God. Ezra 3, 1 to 7 is in the Bible to channel all that we understand is wrong about the world and all the things that we think might need to happen to fix the world to channel those desires towards what God knows and God says is what's truly needed, and that is for our worship of him 
to be restored through Jesus Christ. There is not one person here who is passionate enough about God. There's not one person here who enjoys too much fellowship with God. There is not one of us here who is so pure and so focused and so determined on God that we actually measure up to the, to the level that he deserves. But here's the good news. God is not done with us yet. He is still speaking through his word. He is still working through his spirit. And he is still restoring through his son, Jesus. This is what we need for, for our lives to come to the altar and realize that at that altar is both the place where in leaning, falling, completely upon Jesus, we are actually brought to the place where we now have the privilege of worshiping and honoring and praising our God forever. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so encouraged as I see these people, your people in this passage having this desire to set you first, to put you in your rightful place. And Lord, I am so thankful that it was your idea to make the provision forgiveness, that it was your idea to come and meet us in our sinfulness and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, I pray that as a body we would be moved to worship you, to praise you, to love you because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that right now as we offer up our praises to you, that we would know and see and believe that they're hitting your ears because they've been made holy through the blood of Jesus. Lord, help us now to completely, totally surrender to you every area of our life. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.